This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Mary Louise McLaws. Mary Louise is an epidemiologist at the University of New South Wales and she's an advisor to the World Health Organisation. She's a member of their advisory panel for infection prevention and control preparedness and response to COVID-19. Mary Louise joined me to discuss Victoria's latest coronavirus outbreak due to a breach of South Australia's hotel quarantine system. Victoria is subsequently in its fourth lockdown. We talk about the issues relating to this outbreak, including its concerning presence in the private residential aged care sector, as well as what the lockdown is achieving, when it might be over, and the race to vaccinate Victorians and all Australians. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are and uh, shout out if you are locked down in Victoria. As I said, we're very excited. I'm very excited and I know I'll speak on behalf of others who really love listening to Mary Louise and tell me so that I'm very pleased to have her back on the program to talk about this entire situation. Mary Louise is a professor in epidemiology at the UNSW. She's also a member and advisor to the World Health Organization on their advisory panel for infection prevention and control preparedness and response to COVID-19. And Mary Louise has joined me on this program before a number of times, especially in lockdown, but also out of lockdown to talk about so many of these issues relating to the pandemic locally and globally. Obviously, we're in a very acute phase locally here in Victoria, given that there is an outbreak, of course, quite a small one in comparison to a number of other countries around the world, but still a significant one for a state that had uh, zero community transmission for so many days. And really, I know a number of people felt that things kind of almost seemed quite normal. So it is quite a shock to be back here again. And I know um, it can be also a little bit upsetting for people as well to be taken back to last winter when we were in such a long lockdown. But I welcome Mary Louise now to talk about all of these issues and to provide us with the expert insights from an epidemiological perspective. Hi there, Mary Louise, and thanks so much for coming back onto the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, except in these uh, circumstances, it'd be nicer to talk to you theoretically than being in another lockdown. So I'm sorry about that. Yeah, exactly. And I know uh, everyone listening who is in Victoria would probably agree with you there. Um, certainly, it's something that I didn't really think was going to be happening so soon. And so it is quite a shock to, to many people and obviously has changed many people's plans as well. Uh, but one of the things that is quite surprising about this situation this time around is that uh, we did see this case come from hotel quarantine in South Australia. That part isn't surprising. I guess the surprising element was that we thought that the man who had come across from South Australia, done his 14 days quarantine in South Australia, went flew straight back to Victoria, became positive later on, a couple of days later, got his test. We thought that that man, the now so-called Woolert man, we thought that he hadn't really spread it. Then we had exposure sites for those areas uh, in Melbourne, in the outer suburbs, and it seemed that that had kind of taken care of itself. And that person wasn't super infectious and therefore um, nothing to see here. Unfortunately, that clearly isn't the case and we don't find ourselves in that situation anymore. Taking ourselves back a little bit to South Australia, just for one moment, I did want to ask you about the transmission point uh, between this man in hotel quarantine in South Australia and another person in an adjacent room in this hotel system. Because apparently, from what the news reports say, this alert man was finishing up his hotel quarantine period. Another person was quarantining with someone who became COVID positive. That COVID positive person was removed and put into a Medi hotel. However, the person that had been staying with that person who became COVID positive got put into the room next to the Wallert man. And therefore, the explanation uh, that South Australia has come up with is that the Wallert man has unfortunately, through airborne transmission, 
got COVID from that person who since then also developed coronavirus. I know that's a little bit confusing perhaps to people, but could you share with us your thoughts on that situation, given that this really isn't the first time of suspected airborne transmission and it's also a little bit controversial that that primary close contact was not moved also out of precaution? Well, my first response is that when you're running an outbreak, um, you have to be highly pessimistic and highly precautionary. You can't do things halfway to take one person out and assume that that person that's remaining in the room is not going to acquire acquire the infection because we do know from a Wuhan experience that family clusters occur and there should have been a precautionary approach to the two people sharing the room that they would both be eventually found to be positive. And um, uh, so, first of all, that is a surprising and an oversight. It's, it's a terrible oversight. Secondly, we have known since last year and since I was agitating, but so were other um, scientists agitating that hotels are not purpose-built for a highly infectious agent. They are built as either offices or homes where the airflow is acceptable. It's at a, at a rate that you would expect in your home or, or in an office, in a small office. When you have two people who are exhaling infectious particles, those particles have the opportunity to build up fast if the airflow change doesn't keep up with that buildup. And in hospitals, there's a regulation that says a ward that's for uh, pathogenic uh, infections has to be changed 10 times per hour per patient per average size ward. That's a very high level. And there's probably no hotel in Australia that could keep up with that. Therefore, there needed to be a long vision of uh, how to improve things because every single infection we've had since the lockdown on the 20th of March last year has been directly or indirectly related to quarantine failures. So we had a failure of uh, the second person in the room being moved out. We have a potentially explainable failure, but it's not acceptable uh, that this man from South Australia, I think you called him um, Wallet Man, would have, the most common thing, would he would have acquired it through breathing it in, and that we don't ever say that the air ducts give you uh, the infected air. That's not what we talk about when we're talking about air change. Uh, each room has its own air it's just that it's not refreshed enough. And when you open up the doors, uh, they can act often as a positive air pressure where the uh, particles flow out of the room. The corridors are usually fairly dead space compared to what you would expect in a hospital. And then if Mr. Wallet Man opens up the door, he may inadvertently open up to a face full of particles. I'm not sure why, he wouldn't open up his door with a mask on to protect himself, but he may well have. So if that is the explanation, we are still still not learning about the problems of what I term opportunistic airborne spread. And we know that many respiratory infections or infections that are acquired through the respiratory tract, because this is basically an inflammatory disease that you acquire through the respiratory tract of your eyes uh, going into your lungs uh, needs to be uh, factored in when you're looking after people who you assume are a danger to the community because that's why you've put them in isolation and that they should be in a place uh, that doesn't place the return travellers at any risk because we have an ethical responsibility that we provide them with the same amount of care as we're providing the general community when we put the travellers under the same roof. Mm. And that uh, duty of care is not being followed through. 
So it's a concern. Then Wallet Man assumed he was okay, took the virus with him because no quarantine hotel system yet in any state or territory except the uh, Howard Springs, I believe, are testing uh, travellers on the very last day, in the last 15 minutes of their stay. And had they done that, this man may well have tested positive because a rapid antigen test, otherwise known affectionately in, um, in the business as RATS, rapid antigen test, perform particularly well when you repeat the test on the same population. So you would repeat it on day zero when they arrive in the country and then several days through their stay because they are very good at spotting if you've turned positive early before you get symptoms. So you can be moved out early to keep everybody else in the quarantine system safe. And then you test them on the last day. And that may have told the authorities that this man is positive. And often authorities use the excuse that they have false positives. Yes, that's true. But PCR testing, which this man had got twice only, often has false negatives. Now, wouldn't you prefer a false positive? So if he tested falsely positive, he could have a PCR test done as a confirmatory. Mm. So um, it's, it just beggars belief that we are still not using science. And these rapid antigen tests cost a fraction of the price of a PCR, and they could be used to augment the PCR. They cost about $15, and they take about 15 minutes. Indeed. Well, that's something that I know you've been advocating for, as a number of others have for a very long time during this pandemic. And as you say, it's something to supplement the program, not to replace PCR tests. It does, I agree, make a lot of sense to take that precautionary approach. And if you have a false positive to confirm it through a PCR. I also really appreciated what you said about our duty of care to those who are going through hotel quarantine because we are expecting them to be locked up in a hotel for 14 days on the proviso that we're protecting the community from them if they become positive. But we also need to make sure that we're protecting them from other positive patients within that complex. So I wondered in terms of the Indian variant, which no doubt South Australia would have sequenced um, in that first positive case that then gave it to the case that was in the adjacent room next to our Melbourne Wallert man. I, I wonder if that's something that should and could be taken into account in these situations if we are very concerned about a certain variant, like we originally were about the UK variant. Now we've seen that at least preliminary scientific studies are showing that the Indian variant could be more transmissible or contagious. I wonder if that's a factor that we should be putting into our considerations when we're thinking about risk. And I wonder if you could share with us um, your thoughts about the Indian variant and the various strains that are currently circulating um, and whether that is something that Victoria should be concerned about that we are contending with right now in our own community. Absolutely. The uh, longer it takes for our Australians and Australian residents to come home, the greater the risk of them bringing home a variant of concern or a variant of interest. The difference between a variant of concern and a variant of interest is just one factor, and that is that one of them, the variant of um, concern, causes more severe infection. And uh, this type, this uh, virus that uh, Wallet Man has and those that he acquired it from, is called B1617.1. There are three subgroups from this uh, B1617, otherwise um, known as the Indian variant. And dot two, which we don't have in this circulating virus at the moment, is a variant of concern. It does cause more severe infection. The one we have that's circulating in Victoria right now is dot one, and it is more infectious, absolutely. And it uh, is likely to have a reduction in efficacy of the vaccine. So we need to be mindful when people come home that they are tested on day zero to triage them 
safely into a place that is better built than what we have at the moment so that um, they don't pose a risk to, to the general community and then keep testing those that are, have been triaged as negative because they don't always remain negative. It's just that the tests may not pick them up immediately. Their viral load may be very low. But with a rat test, they, they pick up people with low viral loads uh, very easily. And a plain load of people coming in with a variant of concern or a variant of interest may well have a high viral load earlier than later. But this man is, and his infection and spread is quite interesting, not in a good way, though. Um, so he left on the 4th of May. He tested positive on the 10th. So there's six days. That's about an incubation period. That's fine, and which means that he was probably infectious on the 7th, 8th, and 9th before he got tested. And the delay in testing is very commonplace. A lot of Australians wait to the second or third day to get tested because they're not thinking catastrophically. And this man thought, mm, I've been tested negative on day 13. I, you know, I've probably got a cold or I'm just tired. You know, I've been released into the community and I might be doing a lot of walking and, and a lot of um, entertainment, so I could be just tired. Uh, the other, But the interesting part about this is that then he became infectious likely on the 7th, 8th, the 9th. And then the next cluster didn't happen until quite later on, uh, about, I believe, the 24th or 25th of May. So his viral load may not have been high, but um, in retrospect now, given that I believe today Victoria's got up to about 60-odd cases, it wouldn't matter. The fact is that this virus has learned how to hop from one human being and into the cell of the ACE2 receptor site very effectively. So viruses, this particular class of virus, uh, will change just naturally anyway. But when we put it under pressure from all sorts of things, partial vaccination or gets into somebody that's immunosuppressed, it quickly learns under pressure how to get into the cell more effectively or how to stay on that ACE2 receptor site cell uh, very stably to then uh, get its spike in and enter the cell and then it spreads. Uh, mind you, though, the, the scientists at the moment are learning a lot at, a, at, a, at the speed of light. At WHO, we are very lucky to be updated constantly by these world-class scientists and virologists who tell us about what, where their thinking's going about the variants of concern and variants of interest and uh, the theories of potentially how they become so infectious. So we need to, as a country, realise that when we do bring people home, the likelihood of them being positive is high, the likelihood of that virus being able to spread more rapidly is high, and we need to do much more testing while they're under um, quarantine and then really better testing on the last day. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Associate Professor Stuart Turville from UNSW, who I know is based at the Kirby Institute and is also looking at coronavirus in a, a lot of detail and in terms of how variants are detected, how they're emerging, how they're changing. And I know that in the last Melbourne lockdown, he said that Melbourne was on the verge of the variant in our area starting to morph and mutate into something more concerning. So one of the risks, of course, of allowing community transmission to spread and to not lock down is in fact the virus actually being able to evolve and, as you say, become more effective at infecting more people and also potentially making that disease a lot worse. So I wonder if when we talk about the effectiveness of lockdown or why do we even go into lockdowns, which unfortunately has been a question that a number of media continue to ask, and I thought we'd already kind of covered that question last lockdown, but uh, maybe we should go to it again. When we're thinking about lockdowns, one of those considerations I would presume is to prevent further variants or, or at least mutations that may or may not be concerning. But also, um, surely there are other reasons why we would go into a lockdown to try and um, stamp out this 
community transmission. So I wonder, Mary Louise, I know it's something pretty basic, but because it keeps coming up at press conferences and because I see a lot of confusion around in the community, could we just quickly touch on the reasons why lockdown is brought in and what purpose it has in an acute situation that we find ourselves in right now? So one of the very simple and cost-effective methods of keeping the spread from continuing is social distancing, or we prefer to call it at WHO, um, physical distancing. Now, that's fine if people wear their mask all the time and they're not in an area where people are concerned about acquiring it through your eyes. Your eyes have ACE2 receptor sites and in hospitals, healthcare workers and in quarantine hotels, the workers wear a face shield. And that's to protect their eyes from acquiring it. We don't know what the infectious dose is through the eyes, but you don't want to test that. So if you're kept at home and the authorities can then ensure that everybody's in a safe place. It, it puts a control on the spread. Now, you may well have it at home and you may spread it to your family, but sadly that would have happened anyway. But what they're doing is preventing you from spreading it to friends and work colleagues where the airflow change isn't high enough, uh, where people often game the system often not deliberately. I mean, some of the early infections that quarantine staff may have acquired through is by just removing their mask for a short time under their chin to give them a respite because masks are not easy to wear. I mean, healthcare workers have learnt to adapt and they wear them for many hours, although at WHO we've tried to identify exactly how long you can wear a mask before you become a, a danger to yourself through mask fatigue. So there, there is this mask fatigue as well. And that may not have come into the thinking of the authorities, it's that conscious thinking, but from a, an outbreak management perspective where people bring in all of these different uh, factors, that would be one of them that's very, very important. So it's it's sadly keeping you in a safe place so that the number of primary contacts that you might have because you are infectious, about from the third day of exposure, that's how fast it happens. And then that level of probability of you becoming infectious increases to day four, where 50% of people are infectious to others, then it increases on day five. And day six and seven is usually where you start to get symptoms. That reduces that likelihood that you're a risk to others without you realising it because humans are often optimistic and think, I feel okay, therefore I am okay. Uh, and they don't mean to be problematic to the containment. Uh, it's just that they can't possibly see that they could be a case or a, a potential source. If you asked, and it would be very interesting to ask all the recent cases, how, and I'm sorry, that's the kind of term epidemiologists use, cases rather than people with uh, COVID or people with uh, SARS-CoV-2, because you don't always have the disease, uh, and SARS-CoV-2 is... is the infection, and it may go on to the disease, COVID-19. But if you ask them all, did you have any inkling, did you suspect you could be a case and therefore a source of infection to others? Uh, you know, Wallet Man would have said, absolutely not. And so would the, of all the other cases. They would have found it unusual uh, to even think like that because we are optimistic um, and because you can catch it before people become uh, symptomatic. And that's why the easiest, most effective method, and it's tough, is to ask you to stay at home. And it's yeah. really tough. And the bigger the number of infections out there, 
and therefore the greatest number of primary contacts that the department has to contact to then prioritise are you a risk? Uh, you know, have you been tested? Are you staying at home? Where do you think you caught it from? So that they can then go and chase other contacts. Takes a long time. It could take at least a half an hour to have a good conversation with those primary contacts. And the last time I had a look on the website, you know, there, there were over 10,000, I think, primary contacts that have to be prioritised and have to be contacted. So you've got to stop people inadvertently becoming the source to other people. Yeah. Well, it, it's true. If you look at the uh, the COVID website, coronavirus.vic.gov.au, and you even check the exposure site list, as I have been, and you look at um, all the the dates that keep being added, we're currently at 329 exposure sites. And obviously it will be climbing that the more cases there are. And so that is obviously another concern and something that you've just mentioned there is, you know, the effect of a lockdown is to minimise the number of primary close contacts and also, of course, the number of places you've been for an extended period of time. And so that is also another thing that lockdown will hopefully achieve is to drive down the number of exposure sites. But we have now seen exposure sites from places like retail shopping centres and, you know, finance office places and uh, bars and cafes. We're now seeing, as of a couple of days ago, things become eerily similar to last year now that it has moved into aged care. We're at the early stages of um, an outbreak in aged care in Victoria, but it certainly did ring alarm bells, I'm sure, for everyone hearing that, given that so many uh, elderly people in Victoria last year died of coronavirus. Uh, 655 Victorian aged care residents died with COVID last year. So I wonder if you could just talk us through aged care at the moment, because it seems that it is the greatest concern at this point, and also a concern in particular because it's in private aged care settings, not public, which is run by the state. Therefore, we're seeing a lot of pressure being placed on the federal government, particularly around their policies in terms of vaccination of aged care staff, aged care residents, but also, of course, the site rule, the one site only rule, which was rolled back at the end of November 2020 and has only just been put back in place on Friday, which was to prevent staff from working at more than one aged care site. So uh, with those kind of criticisms and critiques in mind, I wondered if you could give us your take on the situation in aged care and the role of the federal government in trying to minimise the spread. Well, you've got a very difficult situation where uh, carers in aged care facilities who uh, earn very little money per hour and they do a really important job and they often have to work across campuses to make ends meet often or to assist because the uh, number of people being hired is not sufficient uh, to cover the required uh, number of staff to, to residents. And don't forget, these residents are, are fragile um, they need help in and out of bed. They need help uh, in, in the bathroom. Um, they often need help uh, to eat. And carers play a central role. They're, they're like nurses. Nurses are essential to how a hospital runs. And carers are central. And I think that I appreciate people being given a choice about having a vaccine. There needs to be choice in life. But the choice here is an ethically difficult one. You've got uh, carers that cannot keep their social or physical distance between their, the resident and themselves. You know, you're picking somebody up, you're, you're turning them in bed, you're changing them, you're feeding them. It's, that's pretty impossible. You can't expect the carer who isn't vaccinated to wear a mask for their whole shift, which may be eight to 12 hours. 
that's too difficult. And we um, observed that in 2003 uh, during SARS, where healthcare workers in the SARS-designated hospital were working really long shifts and with, with their PPE on. And the longer the shift and the longer the pandemic went on for, uh, the greater the risk of them acquiring COVID through what we term is personal protective equipment fatigue. So the only way you can offer an ethical option to care staff around the vaccine is to give them a time to make the decision and then for the authorities to find them a job outside of the industry if they're unwilling or unsure about getting vaccinated because they play such a central role in preventing the spread. So they and the quarantine hotel staff and frontline healthcare worker staff are the group that I believe cannot have a choice. I mean, staff have to be vaccinated for influenza if they work in aged care. They have to be vaccinated if they work with cancer patients uh, because the duty of care to the vulnerable is paramount. So you've got to increase their pay. They can't keep working across campuses without being vaccinated. Then once they're vaccinated... I would prefer that you would double-check that they've actually developed an immune response, if they have, because there'll be a proportion that won't, that they can then work across campuses. But unless they've got the vaccine and the assurance that they're doing okay, they should not work across campuses. If If the authorities don't want to do that test to identify if they've developed an, an antibody response, then make it a blanket rule. You've got to increase the pay and give them a full shift work or, or the equivalent of what they would have made for a full shift work and only allow them to work on a single campus mm. so that everybody is safe. Well, I I agree. It does make a lot of sense. And I know that a number of people in aged care have wanted to get their vaccine and they've been or were prioritised in the phase 1A cohort of people. However, it's been quite difficult for some to actually get the vaccine. We have heard anecdotal reports that when the private people um, who were contracted through the federal government went into aged care residencies, they gave um, the aged care residents their first dose, but it was only if there was any spare left over that aged care workers could potentially have one of their first doses and then they would need to go and procure their own second dose through a state hub or a GP. Some have also said that they weren't offered that at all and that they were told they just had to go get a vaccine from their GP, which, as we know, if any of those people were under 50, would have found that impossible given the preference for Pfizer. So there are some fair critiques of the federal government and also having those critiques backed up by numbers. I noted that last night Greg Hunt, the health minister at the federal level, said 70,000 people who work in aged care um, in that private-run aged care sector had been vaccinated through the Commonwealth program. Um, And as a a journalist from the ABC reported, that's uh, roughly 19% of the aged care workforce. We know that the state government here in Victoria have said that they finished their vaccination program of aged care staff in April. So we are seeing quite a very different or stark approach uh, between the federal government and how they've been delivering the vaccine program, which technically they are responsible for, versus the state-run program here in Victoria. So I wondered if you had any commentary around the vaccine program, whether it's relating to aged care, which has been obviously the focus more recently because even as of last week, we heard that a a number of people in aged care in Victoria hadn't even had their first dose yet. So we don't have a fully vaccinated aged care resident population. Um, But also I wonder if you had any thoughts more broadly about uh, the vaccination rollout here in Victoria and, um, and what can be done in this current situation that we find ourselves in? Well, first of all, the authorities and 
all owners and anyone running a residential aged care facility need to give respect to the staff who work in aged care. They are really important. They are looking after our much beloved um, elderly population. That respect during a pandemic basically equates to getting the vaccine as soon as possible because it protects the residents as well. Now, some of the residents will decide they don't want to have the vaccine because of their, their age uh, and their medical frailty. So the best way of protecting them is to ensure that the, the staff are fully vaccinated. Now, you can't expect the staff to be vaccinated with AstraZeneca because it takes three months between dose one and dose two to be fully uh, protected. And that's too long, given that we've had over 21,000 cases in Australia caused directly or indirectly from a breach of quarantine. And, of course, uh, it has found its way into aged care. And it often finds its way into aged care through staff who may live in a hyper-connected uh, community. Um, and they're relatively young. They're often uh, under 50. And this is the group that I've been agitating uh, should have got Pfizer right from the word go and should have been offered it as a priority. So after offering Pfizer to frontline workers, that includes residential aged care facilities, everyone under the age of 50 should then be the next priority because they act as a, a barrier. Imagine them like a fence. And there's the occasional hole in the fence where some people won't get vaccinated for many reasons, but the majority of them act as this fence. And the virus may come across this fence but doesn't come across the very occasional hole. And had this group, the 20 to 50, been prioritised immediately and through vaccination hubs, we may not have seen this occur in residential facilities because those three workers, the staff, may have been in that age group that should have been prioritised either as carers or as under 50s. So either way, there's been a woefully slow rollout. Often in, there's been a criticism of the public saying that they're hesitant. I don't necessarily support that. I do know there's a group of Australians who are very um, concerned or uh, are very anxious because they think that, the that this vaccine has been developed so rapidly. And therefore, they may take time to, to consider their position, but it doesn't mean they're truly hesitant. It just means they're much more concerned and, and they want to take time. They don't want to be rushed. So the most important factor in uptake is actually making the vaccine available. If it's not there, then people are not going to be um, vaccinated because there's a theory that says the early adopters and will take up the vaccine or any other um, behaviour of interest. And then after they've done it successfully without a disaster, then the later adopters will take it up. And then those that are labelled hesitant will then see it's okay, will hear more about the science and they'll take it up. So to blame the community for their hesitancy is just unfair. And I think that the rollout has been woefully slow. And I was surprised that vaccination hubs weren't already in the pipeline at the beginning. Uh, so in January, I think it was, I, I wrote um, a tweet that said, we're going to need over 100,000 injections per day if the authorities want us to be vaccinated by October. Now, we weren't anywhere near that, and we've only just started to get to 100,000 a day, but on average, since the rollout, it's still at about 60 to 70,000 injections per day, but we're improving. But that was a hint to say, this is big, and you need all the help you can get. And then I wrote another one saying, you need 
hubs. You need to use stadiums. But that's not the only thing you need. Um, people who are young, the 20 to 39-year-olds, are often overworked in multiple jobs, don't have a lot of spare time, may use it to sleep in or go and do some socialising, as they should, and don't have time to get to a hub. In Victoria, that hub is fairly central. But in Sydney, it's a long way away. So you really do need to uh, factor in how can you get a hub that is responsible for the Pfizer rollout that the young can um, access, and that is by local government. Now, local governments can't offer this without the federal government asking them to assist. And I predict that local governments would fall over themselves to help because they've got a strategy of, I think it was a 2020 to 2023 strategy that talked about immunisation, public health, and they would want to help their community. So you don't need a huge hall. You just need a place where the locals between the ages that can get Pfizer can walk there. They don't have to use expensive public transport and many hours to get there and wait and get home. They walk there, get injected and walk home again. And that will then help. The fact that our authorities have been slow to take up hubs was surprising. We don't even have a bus to take the vaccines out to the regional areas. I mean, in Australia, a lot of our population are out there. And how are they going to get vaccinated with Pfizer? You can't expect the GPs to do this. It's quite complex. They can do that. That's no trouble because they can do, you know, medical procedures and surgical procedures. But it's complex in that once you reconstitute a frozen vial, it's only a viable for a number of hours and you don't want to waste one dose. So you really want it in an area where you're getting multiple people coming. And um, in Israel, the UK and, um, and, in, and America, people often turn up at uh, hubs with the hope uh, that late at night uh, they'll be lucky enough to get their first um, or their final um, dose because somebody hasn't turned up. And that's the sort of thing that would work in regional Victoria or regional Australia, but you'd have to do it through the local government. Mm, absolutely. I agree. And I know that uh, regional Victoria is a place or, well, multiple places that need to be a clear focus. And um, we have seen in Victoria some great regional hubs. I know that the old Ford factory in Geelong has been doing really well and getting people through really quickly and of course the city ones as well, now that we do see that there is a rush. And I think uh, another point to make is that um, in, in relation to your point that people aren't hesitant is the fact that they've been receiving, I guess, mixed messages from various governments, the federal government saying it's not a race, it's not a rush, we can take our time, there's no community transmission. And then others in the states and in the community saying, well, actually, we need to get vaccinated ASAP. We're very lucky to have no community transmission and need to make the most of this fantastic position we're in. Unfortunately, now we're not in a position in Victoria um, that is of zero community cases. So we are even more uh, in a rush or in a race than we were before. And I wanted to ask you, Mary Louise, just about the value and the importance of getting your first dose quickly, but also making sure that you're setting yourself up for the second dose and just how important it is to get that second dose in terms of its overall effectiveness once you're fully vaccinated in regards to some of the variants of concern? Well, here's the rub. Um, the, the variant of concern does reduce the vaccine efficacy, and this is why it is a race, because we're going to have more people coming in with a variant of concern. If we keep having breaches, there will be circulating virus. We need to eliminate this very fast. But getting back to the vaccine issue, we need to vaccinate everybody prior to circulation so it is a race. So, for example, the Indian variant, the B1617.2, the, the efficacy for both um, Pfizer and AstraZeneca for one dose and 
21 days after the first dose, you're only protected at about 33%. So Pfizer doesn't look as if it's really um, working much better than AstraZeneca. But where Pfizer is ahead of the race is that with the second dose, 21 days after the first dose, uh, that efficacy goes up to 88% and then eventually reaches sort of 95%. So, in fact, uh, there is very good evidence that just with the timing that it's a good thing to do um, to, to try to get everybody vaccinated before we get variants of concern. The B1617.1 that's circulating in Melbourne at the moment does have an impact on um, the uh, efficacy, uh, but it's, it's not a huge impact. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's not huge. Uh, it's, it's still very worthwhile getting it, but remember that you are at risk of acquiring COVID. You're not 95% protected until that second dose. And even then, 14 days after that second dose. So when you get your Pfizer, still wear your mask in crowded areas because you don't want to get a virus to then have your body and immune system act as a playground for it to then learn even smarter ways of getting around your partial immune response um, for, the, for this virus to then mutate as, a, as an Australian strain. Mm. Mary Louise, uh, that's a great reason to get your first dose as soon as you possibly can so that you can then eventually get that second dose and wait the requisite two weeks to be properly covered. So I know that that would provide no doubt an impetus for people to to do that and also once they're eligible, of course, um, and to, to be take all those precautions that we've been talking about throughout this show. Just finally, Mary Louise, given that this is probably the question on everyone's mind in Victoria right now, the lockdown here is meant to be originally for seven days. I believe we're on day five. We've just seen the numbers come through that there are nine cases today, six of which have been reported later in the day yesterday, so three cases we weren't aware of through the news today. So I wonder, with that information in mind and the number of currently active cases in the community, from an epidemiological perspective, do you think it's likely or what would be the the considerations around either finishing the lockdown at the seven days or extending it? And do you think we're going to be in a longer lockdown than has been announced so far? Um. Sadly, and don't shoot messenger, sadly, uh, from an outbreak management perspective, what you're supposed to do is use the um, average incubation period, which is about six, seven days. Multiply that twice, so you have 14 days. Where you're supposed to, if you're going for elimination, and we have to go for elimination because this is a variant of interest, you're going to expect 14 days of zeros. If you were very, very correct or, you know, very stringent, given that you've got over 329 locations that this virus could have spread from, uh, the likelihood that this is not just a confined cluster, but a cluster across multiple postcodes, then the correct method is using twice the maximum incubation period of any outbreak. And the maximum incubation period uh, for this one is 14 days, and that would be 28 days of zeros. But if the authorities can see that there's no additional virus found in wastewater where it hadn't been located before, People keep coming out to be tested who haven't been tested and they keep getting negatives. If they've worked their way through the priority list for contact tracing and there's been a little to make them worry, then you may get away with 14 days where you expect zero. I was very impressed with the state during the more recent um, outbreak where uh, they required this uh, outbreak management rule 101 uh, that says you have to have 
14 days of a smaller cluster of zeros, and they did. And they also waited after the second wave of that 28 days. And that was very impressive because the Victorians have, well, the whole of Australia benefited from that. Victoria saved Australia. That's why I made that call on Twitter that all Australians, all states and territories need to send their Pfizer down to Victoria because they saved us last time from circulating virus when they went into that hard lockdown. They are amazing. They're our heroes in this, and they need to be vaccinated to ensure that because they're not going to get out of this in the next week, and it will probably continue for at least another week if from today you get zeros for 14 days. You've got enough time to start your Pfizer today and then get your second Pfizer in 21 days. And, or even if you, you know, if you're partially protected, uh, you're going to save uh, the rest of Australia, uh, particularly the next time from it leaking over the internal borders. And then the rest of Australia can get vaccinated at a slower pace if Victoria is protected. Mm. Mary Louise, you make so much sense and a lot more. And uh, I really appreciate your expertise and insights today. I know that everyone in lockdown at home, no doubt, will also be getting a lot from this conversation just as much as I have, I'm sure. So we send our great thanks to you and also thanks uh, for recognising the contribution of Victorians in this time. Sometimes it can feel a little lonely here in lockdown. So we really appreciate your thoughts today and uh, thanks so much again. It's a pleasure to stay well. And let me tell you, the whole of Australia is... um, you know, is hoping for the very best and we all really do appreciate what Victoria has gone through and what you're going through now. Thank you. I've just been speaking with epidemiologist Professor Mary Louise McLaws. She's based at the UNSW in Sydney and she's also an advisor on the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. And we've just been talking about Victoria's outbreak and lockdown with the Indian variant of interest at the moment.